Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Getting ready to represent Christ to your world today. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. We are praying this morning in the face of uh, growing uncertainty. We are praying in the face this morning of a growing social and global anxiety. And we are people who are praying Philippians 4, 6, and 7. We are believing. We are um, acknowledging. We are um, people of faith in the midst of, again, this just growing global anxiety related to the coronavirus. So let me remind us from Philippians 4. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. So take a deep breath this morning. Uh, Yes, the coronavirus is real. Yes, we are going to wash our hands often with soap and water for at least 20 minutes. We are going to use alcohol-based hand sanitizer when we can't wash our hands with soap and water for more than 20 seconds. Um, We're going to avoid touching our eyes, nose, and mouth with unwashed hands. Uh, We are going to, if we're sick, self-quarantine to protect our neighbors and our families and the general public. Um, and, And when we cough or sneeze, we're going to do so into our elbow we're going to use a tissue to to cover it, and we are going to then throw that tissue away in an appropriate way. Uh, we're going to clean and disinfect frequently touched objects and surfaces, doorknobs, cell phones, elevator buttons, all kinds of things. Anything that other people touch with potentially unwashed hands, we're going to wash. We're going to clean. We're going to disinfect. But we're going to do so without this maniacal anxiety that is rising in the culture and rising around the globe. We are going to be the non-anxious people. Okay, that is who Christians are in the midst of plagues. That is who we are. And one of the things that you're going to see on the list of basic instructions, um, I didn't read. Because one of the things on the basic list of instructions is that we will avoid people who are sick. Now, that's just fundamentally not Christian. And so um, I don't want us to be people who are anxious or afraid. I want us to do everything and and care uh, for ourselves and others in ways that are absolutely most appropriate to uh, to protect ourselves from being infected. But I don't want us to be people who are operating with such fear that we uh, avoid the Great Commission and, frankly, the opportunity, the opportunity to extend the grace of God and the knowledge of God's goodness to other people in the midst of this. So, um, we are going to prepare. We are going to appropriately prepare, and we're going to do so as if uh, as if everything depends on us. And we are going to pray as if everything depends on God. Um, and so, let me just lift up these prayer concerns to you today, and invite you to uh, pray today for missionaries and their families around the world. Pray for healthcare professionals. Pray for those at the CDC. Pray for those who are seeking to develop a vaccine. Um, pray for those who are sick. Let us pray for God's grace to be poured out 
that even this, even this would be used by God as a revelation of his glory. Like, right? That's who we are. Let us not be people who um, live in fear or allow fear to triumph love. What if, what if today we actually viewed this as an opportunity, wherever we are, in whatever environment around the globe, what if we viewed this as an opportunity as Christians to respond in ways that are notably distinct from the rest of the world? Let us be people who are ambassadors of the Prince of Peace and the kingdom where the great physician rules, people who don't fear death in the same way that those living without hope fear death. And let us be the people who extend the tender mercies of God to others. So yes, absolutely, wash your hands, use your hand sanitizer, but don't avoid other people as if they are the plague, right? Other people are not the problem. Um, We have a problem right now globally, and we need to address it. But the problem is not people. So let us continue to regard them as precious and those to whom God is sending us as ambassadors of his grace. All right. First up this morning, I've got Matthew Hawkins. He and I are going to talk about some um, developments this week in Washington related to uh, pro-life bills um, that actually ended up being blocked. But it's important for us to know what is happening there. So that's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Now, Matthew Hawkins, a public theologian. You can find him at MatthewTHawkins.com, his Crossing Faiths podcast available there, as well as things he is musing about. Uh, Matt, welcome back. Thank you very much, Carmen. Happy Friday. Is uh, Mostly you're musing now about your upcoming uh, PhD coursework, yes? Yes. All of my musing is about PhD seminars <laughs> coming up next month, and it's... <laughs> Over my head, well, for, and I'm deep in it. Mostly hermeneutics, uh, and oh which is goodness, not a guy named Herman. But that is not a guy so whose reading. first name is Herman. Exactly. So much yeah. reading, and Christian ethics. I, I thought I knew a lot about Christian ethics. Holy moly! I'm I'm deep down in a rabbit hole now. But yeah, how okay, about so, that coronavirus? Goodness yeah. gracious! I'm thinking about a um, a, a children's a all of Japan. Book. Okay, so here I'm, pitch, I'm pitching an idea to Japan. You. Did you hear Japan canceled, like, has canceled school. school for like a month? Did you hear that Iran has canceled Friday prayers in all their mosques? I did not hear that. Wow. Yeah, so it's major. It's major. I mean, let's just think about that yeah. here in the United States of America for just a moment. How would we feel if worship across America on Sunday morning was um, mandated, closed, like not happening by order of the government yeah. to protect people from the spread yeah. of the virus? Like we would be like, Mm-mm, we're going to church. I'm just saying. Yeah, may, I know we were. <laughs> maybe my my DC well, okay. church uh, canceled I one know, or two right? weeks of church for uh, like a stomach bug a few years ago. Yeah, well, that was a stomach bug. It was like uh, yeah, but right. So like an individual congregation basic. making yeah. that decision in their own community for right right for their yeah. right yeah. is different than government mandated closure of religious institutions. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Anyway, it, it, we're going to have opportunities to talk about it. I think it's not yeah. going away this week. No, not this week. That's going to last longer. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, speaking of things that have lasted longer than um, we might have hoped. Um, so when we talk about born alive bills, when we talk about protecting yeah. people who uh, 
people attempted to abort these individuals. And so we actually yeah. had Melissa Odin here on the program. Um, mm-hmm. She is an abortion survivor, and yeah. you know she's written a beautiful memoir um, called "You Carried Me." Um, she survived an abortion. You know, people attempted yes. to kill her as an infant, as a baby, as a some people call fetus, right? And she didn't die. Mm-hmm. She did not cooperate with that plan, um, and she was right. born alive. Now, it should be the responsibility of doctors and everyone else who is present to when that baby is born alive, do absolutely everything in their power um, to sustain that child's life at that point. And so this bill, yeah. am, am I correct in saying the bill that that Democrats blocked um, would have basically mandated that, would have mandated that medical professionals who are present at the time when a infant is born alive that, uh, that you know, was the subject of an abortion, um, a, a yes. failed abortion, that they would be responsible to care for the life of that child. Yeah, that's that's exactly right, Carmen. And it, it's it ought to be the bare minimum that abortion providers uh, ought to be required to provide um, at their clinics uh, is the capability of caring for um, a, a victim who has survived an abortion, um, and uh, that's ought to be a base. Um, in 2020, especially, um, ought to be a base human right um, that ought, you know, a child that's born alive ought not to be, um, well, either, you know, a victim of infanticide or or neglected and left to die on its own. Um, and that kind of stuff does happen. It happened to Melissa and uh, it's a, who has a remarkable testimony. Um, and the Senate uh, has tried to pass the uh, um, born alive uh, Victims Protection Act, and it failed this week in the Senate. And uh, alongside uh, an abortion ban that would stop abortion at 20 weeks, it's the "quote unquote" pain-capable uh, abortion ban. And so, if you want to, we can talk a little bit about the Senate and the numbers here, uh, which I think is interesting as a as a former government relations guy, uh, because a lot of people are focusing right now on the fact that uh, the Senate has has a rule that you have to have 60 votes to pass anything. And so there are some pro-lifers who will say, well, if we don't break that rule, if we don't use the quote-unquote nuclear option um, that we did away with on judges um, for the Senate, why, why not now? Why not in something like this? And I think there's some reasons for that. And uh, But uh, I'll, I'll pass it back to you in case uh, you want to steer this conversation. No, I want to have that conversation. That's absolutely what I want to talk about. We have to take a very brief break. Um, This is really a a conversation about elections having consequences and um, why you need a 60-vote majority in the Senate if you want a pain-capable or you want a a protection act related to children who are born alive after a botched abortion. Um, If you want that legislation in this country, then uh, you need 60 votes in the Senate to get it. I'm going to talk with that. Uh, Matt Hawkins and I are going to continue that conversation here in just a moment. We'll be right back. Continuing my conversation with Matthew Hawkins, you can find him at MatthewTHawkins.com or on Twitter at MTHawk. Um, All right. So, Matt, let's pick up where we left off. Um, So the Senate has a rule. Explain the rule um, and then explain how the rule has been set aside in some circumstances um, and why that is either a good or bad idea. Yeah. 
So the rule is basically that to pass legislation out of the Senate, uh, you need 60 votes. And the uh, the rationale for that is that you need a supermajority uh, to pass legislation in the Senate. Um, in the House, it's just a simple majority. Uh, and it's not required by the Constitution, but it is a Senate rule. And uh, you've seen both Republicans and Democrats at different points in our in, in the Senate history, especially the last, last couple of decades, uh, argue for uh, dismantling it because they really want to pass stuff. They have 51 votes uh, to get a, a simple majority. And so uh, let's do away with this whole filibuster nonsense. So the idea that is that the uh, the opposition can filibuster. And as long as they uh, have uh, have at least, you know, 40 votes, um, uh, to uh, diminish or 41 votes, I guess, to not um, to block legislation, then the legislation doesn't go forward. Um, some people want to overturn that. We did, uh, Mitch McConnell famously a few years ago, um, did do away with it for the sake of voting on judges. Um, and um, I liked my my former boss's Richard Land's rationale for that, is that you can negotiate on pieces of legislation. So the filibuster is a negotiation tool, right? Um, so that a simple majority doesn't um, doesn't ram stuff down the throat of a, of a minority. Um, that's basically, uh, that rule is an expression of, of moderating the majority rule. Um, but Richard Land said, uh, you can negotiate on a bill, but you can't negotiate part of a judge, right? <laughs> you either vote for all the judge or none of the judge. And uh, so it makes sense to do it with the filibuster um, when you're talking about judges. Uh, but maybe it's still worthy of ha keeping in place for legislation. What I want to point out for uh, are some numbers here um, because – the, these kinds of bills, especially in a culture and a legal landscape where uh, abortion is the law of the land, on demand, uh, in all 50 states, unless the states have taken uh, different action to regulate it, um, culture-changing, uh, paradigm-shifting legislation does not happen in one session of Congress. It just doesn't. Uh, it's extremely rare. And frankly, if we as pro-lifers want um, abortion law to be sustainable and for the American people to have buy-in for it. Uh, we want a bipartisan uh, vote on something like that and frankly, a, a, frankly, a supermajority. Uh, and right now, it wouldn't make any sense on these laws to um, breach the filibuster because we don't have the House um, behind us anyway. So it's not like you could breach, uh, break the filibuster and it would get to the president's desk. Uh, the politics are such that uh, it would be pointless to do so in this current environment. I will point out uh, that the vote this week, the 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 number of co-sponsors and the and the votes is an increase from the previous session of Congress. And so, as we look at a long-term legislative game, which is this is what that is, we see forward motion. This week, the Senate voted 53 for the the, the pain-capable ban. Uh, in the previous session, they only got 51 votes. So they've got two more votes than they did last time. The co-sponsors, they actually gained 11 co-sponsors uh, between last session and this session. That's all positive movement. you got to get people on the record on it, and you got to get people on the record in consecutive Congresses. On the Born Alive Victim Protection Act, uh, this this week's vote was 46 or 56 to 41. That's 56 senators voting for it. Um, that means uh, that the Born Alive picked up some Democrat votes. So there's room for um, uh, applause there for a few Democrat votes. Um, it picked up four co-sponsors related to the last session. And in the last session of Congress, they didn't even bring it to a vote that I could find in the Senate. Um, 
And frankly, that's really disappointing. Remember the last session of Congress, we had a, a, a government united with Republicans, which is supposedly a pro-life caucus, and they didn't even bring Born Alive Protection Act to a vote in the Senate um, when they had the majority uh, in both chambers. So uh, I see four, it's, it's two things can be uh, uh, true at the same time, right? It's an election year. Um, so they're going to, you know, Republicans want to have some pro-life votes. But I can remember earlier um, generations of Republicans where they wouldn't have touched an abortion bill during an election year, right? So I do see markers of forward motion here. So all is not lost, even even as we look at the text of the bill and look at the people who voted for it and we're like, oh my goodness, how could you vote against this? Um, tactically speaking, I, I see reason for encouragement, but we got to figure out a way uh, to hold uh, congressional Republicans, congressional pro-life Republicans accountable uh, in future sessions. What gets brought to a vote is up to uh, the leadership of either the House or the Senate, depending on which body we're talking about. So that's an interesting conversation going forward. It also occurs to me if I'm in a state, if I live in a state um, where there's a Democratic majority and so um, Mm -hmm. my my representative may or may not represent my views right on a particular issue, um, I still – I, I still have influence with that individual. And so if I have you a do. senator, right, if I'm if I'm in a state that leans blue and therefore, um, contrary to my convictions, uh, an individual is elected to to serve in the Senate to represent my state, I still have influence yes. with that individual. Like I should still reach out across what I you know might think of as party lines because that person is now yeah. my senator or my representative. Exactly. Exactly. And I, th- I think we d- too often don't appreciate that. Uh, local op- local district offices, too, are, are often the best channel. Don't worry about calling the D.C. phone number. Uh, find out where the local district office is uh, and build a relationship. Don't, you know, don't send hate mail uh, and that kind of thing. But express express your viewpoint. Uh, we often think as um, senators and congressmen as um, as being on or off, yes or no for the vote, because that's what the vote is. Um, but there are different levels of leadership um, and influence on a particular bill. So if they're if if, if a you know pro-choice Democrat is hearing from pro-life uh, Republicans in their district, maybe they're a little more quiet about their 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 vote. Maybe they don't co-sponsor a bill, right? Um, they they're probably going to vote the way they're going to vote. Um, but there's you know uh, different layers of influence uh, for legislators, and so I think you're exactly right. Don't take don't assume that uh, just because someone's on a different side of the aisle or a different um, uh, position on an issue than you that you don't have any influence. Um, I think we forget that uh, to our detriment, really. All right. And this also reminds me that um, that even voting for a senator or voting for a representative is a down ballot issue. And so let me just remind people uh-huh. Regardless of whether or not you like who is at the top of of the ticket uh, in terms of um, the presidential election this year, you still have to go vote. You still have to go vote because all of those down ballot races really do matter. So, uh, Matt, I always appreciate how you help us see the intersection um, of our faith with the politics of the day, particularly that which is going on in Washington, D.C., an environment that you know well and most of us uh, view as absolutely like foreign terrain. So thank you, my friend. Happy to do it anytime. And hey, blessings. I don't think you're with us. Are you with us next week or are you off PhDing? I'm off next for like the next, what, three weeks? Yeah. yeah. Okay, I'm, so we're uh, going to mi- mired gonna... in PhD seminar. So I'll see you. So... Yeah. 
and, we'll soldier and on without you for a few now. weeks, and um, and just know that we'll yeah. we'll pray for you in your absence. <laughs> I appreciate it. Thank you very much. Absolutely, we'll be right back. Okay, so uh, you can always text me at eight seven seven nine three three two four eight four. When we do so, let's see if we can keep the conversation um, on a level that is um, that's kind, <laughs> right? Um, uh, it, it, I think it's just inappropriate to to suggest that somebody is not a Christian or not reading their Bible because they happen to disagree with your particular virulent view uh, on a subject or an issue. And so we have to figure out in this culture, in this in this crazy divisive partisan day, we have to figure out how to um, speak not only with one another, but to one another in ways that are actually compelling and not just like, I mean, just put away your flamethrower, right? I'm, I'm not whipping out mine, so you ought not whip out yours, like, right? I, I just, so there you go. You're welcome to text me. Let's just uh, maybe maybe pray before you do so. Like, right? Send up a, tw- a, a two-second prayer. God, is this uh, is this an appropriate thing to be saying to my Christian brother or sister? Um, and yeah, whew. All right. Uh, not complaining. Just uh, just trying to call us out a little bit. My next conversation is with Chris Martin. We are talking about social media and the way that we engage in it. I'm going to straight up ask him what a meme is. You've heard the term. Maybe you think you know what a meme is. Apparently, Mike Bloomberg is using a lot of memes. I'm not really sure I know exactly what that means. So the meaning of a meme up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Okay, so um, today is the last day that I can tell you, because tomorrow is actually the last day, but today is the last day that I get to say, hey, hey, you get a discount, uh, 10% off registration for the month of February, which ends tomorrow, uh, if you want to register for the Northwestern Christian Writers Conference. So it's July 24th and 25th. You can join me there. It'll be really fun. NorthwesternChristianWritersConference.com is the website. There are still a few one-on-one appointments available uh, if you want to meet with me, but there's a lot of other really cool people that you might choose to meet with as well. Editors, agents, authors, um, wonderful people like Susie Larson, uh, Karen Kingsbury, Alicia Britt Scholey, on and on and on. So join us at the Northwestern Christian Writers Conference today and tomorrow, last days uh, that you can get this 10% off registration. You just go to NorthwesternChristianWritersConference.com. We'll be right back. It happens to lots of parents today. The kids grow up, graduate high school, go off to college, then they return home to live. Hi, I'm Mark Gregston with Parenting Today's Teens. Ah, the boomerang generation. Older children in their late teens or early 20s who fly back into the nest. So how do you relate once they're back under your roof? Well, the first thing to do is to adjust your approach. They're not little kids anymore, and you don't need to lecture them on what to do. On the flip side, you need to stick to the boundaries that reflect your core beliefs. And if a young adult crosses the line, hold your ground. And finally, your child won't always be nearby, and now is your chance to deepen your friendship and enjoy the young adult you've raised. Learn how to get your teen back on track. Get instant access to Mark's free parenting course online at freeparentingcourse.com.
So during the break, um, I, I was Googling because if, if Switzerland has banned all public and private events of more than a thousand people, how does that affect churches? Um, come to find out there are no churches in the entire nation of Switzerland where that many people would gather. So that just makes me sad and is a new uh, coronavirus prayer concern um, for me today. I am talking now with Chris Martin from Lifeway Social. Chris, welcome back. Hey, thanks for having me. All right. So it makes me sad. There's not a church in the entire nation of Switzerland where this ban on on public or private events of more than a thousand people would have an impact. Doesn't that make you a little bit sad? It is sad. Yeah, it is sad for sure. All right. So um, you're the manager of Lifeway Social or am I calling it right? Social at Lifeway. Yeah. Yeah. So um, you're a really great person for me to ask really basic, probably terrible questions I don't really, I mean, I would throw these terms around and I would act like I know what they mean, but that would not really be true. So what, what is a meme? What does that mean? And then what is trolling and why has the Pope um, uh, called for a fast from trolling during Lent? So we'll start with memes and then we'll go to trolling. And then we're going to do the one that sounds like peanut butter. And I'm going to ask you how to rightly pronounce it. Okay. Uh, yeah. So memes, uh, memes are, man, how do you explain memes? They're, uh, they're jokes based in internet humor. Uh, a lot of people think of memes. I mean, there are a couple ways to define it. The, the term meme has uh, transformed over the years. I think memes used to be, uh, images of various kinds with text superimposed on top of them. Um, often, that text of a funny nature. So you, you'd see them on Facebook or whatever. It kind of started with the, um, with cats back in the day, there's an old website called, uh, uh, can I has cheeseburger back in the day where there would be like pictures of cats with a picture with like a cat speak jokes superimposed over top of them. I remember seeing those in high school. That was the earliest memes I remember. Um, but today, memes are uh, memes are internet humor that you know spill over into the real world and 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 offline humor as well. But they they start in internet communities on Reddit or within Twitter or within Tumblr or Instagram or other social media platforms. Often, a meme will start within a niche community. Um, so a, a niche community will come up with some meme around a shared interest. So let's say there's a there's someone who or. NBA Twitter is one of the strongest communities on the internet. So people who are just really big fans of the of the NBA uh, interacting on Twitter together. Perhaps there is a funny image from a basketball game last night, and people start uh, making jokes uh, where that that image is the punchline, and it's totally unrelated to whatever was going in, on in the basketball game. Or um, they're they're all everyone has seen a meme, whether they know it or not. It's taking something. Uh, perhaps from popular culture, like a screenshot from a TV show or a sporting event or something like that. Crying Jordan uh, is a one of the most popular pervasive memes uh, that was kind of going around a lot a year or two ago, where there was a picture of Michael Jordan uh, crying, uh, and they would just they, people just like cut out that head from whatever image. I forget what the image was even from, but they cut out that image. Uh, that head from that picture and just kind of like superimpose it over people who like failed at doing things. Um, and so that's one example. But the reason memes are more in the news, uh, it's just so funny to talk about memes in a sort of matter of fact way, because they just, they're, they're so, um, it's just so funny that a piece of internet culture is kind of 
making it into mainstream culture a bit. Uh, but they're making it into mainstream culture because Michael Bloomberg, Michael Bloomberg's campaign uh, is just is is using them a lot um, and is trying to. There are like meme accounts whose entire uh, social media presence is to create and share and perpetuate memes, right? So like, it's not like a person like Joe, it's called, you know, it's like called memes, whatever, uh, memes for fun or something like that. And they have an Instagram account and all they post is a bunch of different memes that are popular on the internet or particularly funny at that moment. And memes are very transient. So a meme that's funny today uh, may last for a year. That would be a really long time, or it may last for like three days and then people just kind of move on. Cause it really wasn't that funny or people exhausted, uh, the humor that could be found in it. Um, but Michael Bloomberg's campaign as part of their sort of, um, as part of their marketing of their campaign is trying to sort of infiltrate meme culture by creating memes around Bloomberg. And so a lot of times candidates may have memes created of them, uh, or, or there may be memes created of candidates unintentionally. Like the candidates may not even like that memes are created of them because sometimes that may be disparaging to the candidate themselves. Um, there have been a lot of Bernie memes, for instance, but Bernie's audience is the sort of internet culture audience that that creates some of the most pervasive memes. So there, Bernie's audience is like creating memes of him out of a sort of affection, whereas and and that's like an effective mean means of memes supporting your campaign. An ineffective way to use memes to support your campaign is to try to engineer that, right? To try to to try to inorganically inject that. And that's what Michael Bloomberg is doing. They're like paying people, paying these meme accounts that are famous for creating funny internet jokes to try to incorporate Michael Bloomberg into their funny internet jokes. And all of that in inorganic or fake uh, memes don't really work. And when people find out that you tried to engineer them or like some, you know, let's say some company, uh, so you know, um, some peanut butter company decided they wanted to try to create a bunch of memes and like like slide them into organic meme culture and creation, it would backfire, blow up in their face. And that's exactly what happened with Michael Bloomberg. They were trying to do, they were trying to create memes to seem cool among young people. But then when it was kind of revealed that they that they were paying to get this stuff wedged in uh, to try to make it seem like it was real, uh, it kind of blew up in their face and people were like, oh, he's just he's just a boomer trying to get trying to seem <laughs> cool among the young among the young kids. You know, that, that so that's that's how they've kind of pervaded popular culture these days. So that's really helpful. Um, I mean, I actually like reading information about Facebook trying to keep up with these, you know, I don't know, are they fake memes if you're paying for them? Like that's that whole conversation going on. And it's an interesting one. Um, and I think that in in terms of how we are influenced during an election cycle and how social media um, is has really risen in terms of the way people not only engage in political conversation, but how they influence others. That's actually why we're having this conversation, because I think that it's important. There are a lot of Jesus memes out there. Um, for those of you who are looking for the intersection here in, ter in terms of the Christian faith, um, here's an intersection for you between social media and uh, and this particular season in the church year that we call Lent. When we come back from the break, I am going to have Chris Martin explain why the Pope has called for a Lenten trolling fast. And Chris is going to actually explain to me what trolling is. We'll be right back. Awake our souls. Awake our souls. 
Talking with Chris Martin from Lifeway Social. You can check out his blog at chrismartin.blog. Um, all right. What is trolling? We hear this word. And when the Pope calls for people to set aside really all social media, he wants them to set aside their phones. Um, and he certainly wants them to have a trolling fast for Lent. Yeah. So um, multiple outlets reported uh, on the on the Pope's message uh at the beginning of Lent uh, this week, and his call for a more regulated um, engagement with the internet. So here are some of his comments as uh, as summarized by this Reuters article I'm looking at. So he said Lent, uh, he said this, he said, um, is it time to give up useless words, gossip, rumors, tittle-tattle, and speak to God on a first-name basis? We live in an atmosphere polluted by too much verbal violence, too many offensive and harmful words, which are amplified by the internet. Today, people insult each other as if they were saying good day. And I think it's, um, you know, I'm not Catholic. I don't, I don't go to the Pope for my um, theological or pastoral guidance, but I think there's some real wisdom there. Um, I think that's really helpful. Those are some really helpful words. So really, without without naming it, he's he's calling out trolling. What is trolling? Today, today on the Internet Explained, uh, part two, first we've defined memes. Secondly, <laughs> we're defining trolling. Um, trolling, I'm just going to read you a definition I found that I think is really helpful. Trolling as it relates to the Internet is the deliberate act by a troll – uh, as it, as they're called, of making random, unsolicited, and or controversial comments on various internet forums or social media platforms with the intent to provoke an emotional knee-jerk reaction from unsuspecting readers to engage in a fight or argument. Uh, so trolling, and it has, it's kind of a double entendre where um, it's related to the fishing act of trolling, where you're in a boat kind of just putzing around in the water waiting to get a bite on your on your fishing rod. Because in a way, you're you're fishing for an emotional response by posting a, a mean comment. You're you're trolling around in a in the fishing term, uh, just kind of putzing around a lake looking to try to get people to respond to what you're saying. And then there's also a relation to the sort of troll from our fantasy fantasy literature, where the troll you know lives under the bridge and is just angry and mean to everybody who comes across you know and tries to keep people from going across the bridge or whatever so it's a very loaded term and and an appropriate one in every respect um i think trolling is as old as the internet um and i think uh, why do people troll each other it, very loosely uh you know i i just read you the uh, one a uh, dictionary definition of trolling but very loosely the word trolling is just used to say people who are mean to other people on the internet for no good reason really who are just trying to um get get a rise out of people get people to to respond angrily and kind of uh get mad really quickly um and i think Trolling is as old as the internet because trolling at its root is sin. I mean, it's it's provoking other people to anger, um, and it's you know there are there's a fine line I think sometimes between um, healthy, honest criticism and trolling. Uh, you know, I part of a significant part of my job at Lifeway is to uh, oversee and moderate comments on a number of our social media platforms, and for me, I have to work really hard sometimes to discern whether someone who is coming to us with a, a criticism is uh, is coming to us with a sort of honest criticism where they genuinely care for us or for whatever they're concerned about, or if they are trying to elicit some sort of response 
um, by how their tone is. And tone is just so hard to discern online. There are certain words you look for, or if you can, you can try to find uh, whether the critic is uh, has has a history of of commenting in certain ways because trolls tend to not be one time trolls. They tend to not be one hit wonders. Uh, trolls on the internet make um make a living not not financially, but they uh, make a living in a hobby sort of way, uh, just trying to get a response out of people online. Uh, and so that's what trolling is. And and I think the Pope, uh, as much as I don't agree with him on some things and don't kind of follow him for any sort of guidance, I think the Pope makes a really great. Uh, ask of anyone who's listening to him to kind of refrain from from all of the negative communication that comes through the internet these days. All right, and then we've got like a couple of minutes to discuss this um, this piece that's posted at thegospelcoalition.org uh, that you uh, wrote, and it's called "No Social Media Alg- Algorithm Rewards Grace." Tell us about that. Yeah, so um, I read this article back around Christmas time by Jonathan Haidt and Tobias Rose Stockwell called "The Dark Psychology of Social Media," and at the end of it, you know, they're talking about social media and how it affects democracy. At the end of it, they say, "If we want our democracy to succeed, indeed, if we want the idea of democracy to regain respect in an age when dissatisfaction in democracies is rising, we will need to understand the many ways in which today's social media platforms create conditions that may be hostile to democracy's success." And then we will have to take decisive action to improve social media. That's how they ended their article. And I thought it was profound uh, because they said uh, we have to understand the many ways in which today's social media platforms create conditions that may be hostile to democracy's success. And I was like, man, that's a really great thought because I think today's social media create conditions that may be hostile to Christian and Christ-like communication. And Mm -hmm. so I wrote an article kind of based on that idea um, and I talk about in social media, like what changed, how, how a lot of the sharing functions and features, the retweet, the share, those all encourage a sort of mob mentality that, that arises as we see all the time. And most mobs aren't nice mobs. Most people don't get together and raise torches and pitchforks to celebrate something. They do it to, uh, to go after someone. And I think it's important for us as we use social media, much like the Pope has said, um, to understand that social media is more prone, you know, it's prone to uh, bring out the sin in our own hearts than the joy in our own hearts. Um, and, and we should understand that the platforms themselves are engineered to support angry action more than joyful action. And we should just interact with social media with that understanding, and it should color how we use it. All right, so I'm re-upping a social media manifesto um, that uh, that's actually posted on my website at uh, reconnectwithcarmen.com. But the article that Chris has written at the Gospel Coalition is excellent and really um, makes a, a sound and reasoned argument um, and asks really great questions. So check it out, thegospelcoalition.org, social media algorithm. Um, it does not reward grace. And we want to be people who reward grace and promote grace. Hey, Chris, thank you for being a grace-filled and grace-extending brother. Have a good weekend. And and for explaining simple things that are simple to you. I I still don't know if G-I-F is a soft or a hard G, but we'll talk about that on another time. Great. Okay. We'll be right back. Okay, I ask the questions that you want to know the answers to and don't have somebody like Chris Martin to ask. So there you go. Um, Hopefully we've learned something today. Hopefully we are more prepared to enter into 
not only social media, but actual social relationships with more grace today. Let us be people who um, have an intentional and purposeful engagement on social media, um, that that could be a place where God's grace is actually extended to more and more people through the way we participate there. Um, All right. So uh, at the end of this hour, let me just remind us to be people who are anxious for nothing. Let us be purposefully praying today in a particular direction. So our purposeful praying today um, is going to be in the particular direction of God healing those who are sick, um, those who have a growing anxiety related to the spread of the coronavirus, those who are on the front lines of not only protecting us, um, but on the front lines of treating those who are affected. And so uh, let's be praying today for missionaries who are certainly deployed around the world in places where this um, this issue is a great of greater concern than it is here currently in the United States of America. But let us also be people as we take all of the necessary precautions that we don't become people who um, avoid helping others in their time of desperation and need. You and I, as Christians, we no longer have the fear of death that others have. And so we can be gracious. Um, we can be, uh, we can extend grace to people who are sick and people who are dying and even pe- people who are highly contagious. Like we can be the people who extend grace to them um, because we actually know that when death comes, uh, we get to go be with Jesus. And so Christians have an opportunity in seasons like this, not only to pray purposefully, for God's healing and protection and guidance, but also that God would use us in the midst of this to advance the gospel. It has been the prayer of Christians in China on the forefront of the coronavirus. Let it also be our prayer as well. We got a whole nother hour up next. We'll be right back. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.